0: listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Into a new series that we're calling The Essentials. Essentials. When it comes to doctrine, when it comes to beliefs, then things that we believe as Christians can fall into one of two categories. They fall into either the essential beliefs or the essential principles of the Christian faith, or they fall into the non-essentials. Now here's where we err It's when we think that there are some that are important and some that are not important. If God has communicated it to us, it's important. Okay, so don't ever think that there are certain things in the scripture that aren't important. God wouldn't have said it if it wasn't important. But they do get to be uh, classified into a couple of different categories. And that is essential and non-essential. Now understand... When God was revealing himself, when God was, was communicating himself to mankind, never once did he say, now, guys, this is not essential. This is essential. that God doesn't put these in categories. We do. We do. And you say, well, do we have the authority to do that? I, th- I think we do. And, and here's, here's what we mean by essential and non-essential. It means we're going to hold fast to the principles of God's word, to what he's revealed to us. But when it comes to those things that are essential, then we mean that God has made such a big deal out of this that to depart from or to believe something other than these essential truths would put us outside of the faith. It would mean we would be believing something contrary to the faith. So if something is essential that means we've got to be agreed because God made a big deal about this and to depart would be on the outside of the faith. When it comes to the non-essential things you see God didn't make any less of a big deal about this but what we discover is that there is there is room for disagreement it's not that we can disagree with God. It just means that we are limited in our ability to understand fully what God is saying. And so we wrestle. In fact, I think God made it that way. I think God put things in his revelation that would cause us not to fight and not to fuss, but to sharpen iron on iron so that we might be talking about him we might be discussing his word and as we do that we're becoming stronger in our faith not so much about us being right and others being wrong but about us being in the middle of talking about and wrestling with the truths of god and becoming more and more connected as followers of jesus so the non-essential things are things that we, we all believe are a part of God's word. We just come to differing understandings about it. For instance, an essential that we will get to toward the end of our list is that when when the time is according to God's will... Jesus is going to return to this earth. He came to this earth the first time to be born in humility, to be born as a, as a poor man in a poor family with, with radical type circumstances in order to present himself as savior. When he comes back, he's going to present himself as king. That's an essential of the faith. To to deny that Christ is going to return is going to deny something that God made a very big deal about. And so what we would say is essential is that we believe that Jesus Christ will return to this earth. Now, where it gets into the non-essentials is what's that going to look like? What's going to be going on here? What are we going to be doing? What's going to happen to us during that time? Are we going to be here? Are we going to be raptured? Is there no such thing as a rapture? Is there going to be a tribulation? No, there's no tribulation. Is there a thousand year kingdom? No, that's not how we understand it. There's all kind of differing ways to understand how Jesus is going to come back. But we over here can go, Well, I know you don't believe it like I do and I don't see it like you do, but get in here, let's hug it out. Let's talk about this, but let's be brothers and sisters wrestling with what none of us fully understand because it's non-essential, not non-important. God said it's important. How we understand it is limited because we are limited and so we wrestle together as brothers. But over here, if we say, no, Jesus is not coming back, well then, you know what? You're probably on the outside of the faith because this is essential. So, does it make sense what we're talking about? Essentials, non-essentials. So, for us, we have in our doctrinal statement, our doctrinal, you know, our, our 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 statements of faith and belief is what I believe what we call them. It has our our bold and broad statement of faith this is what we believe about major things and how we fall and in that are essential and non-essential things so what do we do we pulled out eight essentials so that when folks come to oasis church and say hmm do we want to be a part of what they're doing they can look at our essentials and know basically where we stand. In fact, it gives us as a church, when folks come and say, we want to partner with you, it gives us the ability to say, we would love to partner with you as long as we are agreed on these eight essentials. These things, we've got to be in agreement with no deviation. There can be no reservation about these eight things. Yeah, but Kevin, what about the non-essentials? What about... I come from a, I come from a Pentecostal background, but I want to come to Oasis Church. Well, okay, we've stated over here in the non-essentials how we understand some of the workings of the Spirit. This is what we, this is what we do. This is what we don't do because of how we understand it. You say, well, I disagree with that. That's okay as long as that's not going to cause you any problem. If that's not gonna cause you any big major problem, then you're great to be here. But if the fact that we don't agree with you about certain things is gonna cause you problems, well, then we might not be the place for you, but we're still gonna hug it out because we're brothers and sisters, make sense? Okay, so that's where we're at. We're on essential number two. Last week, we looked at the first essential that has to do with the scripture. And our first essential, I don't have, I should have had it on on our handout and on the board. The first essential is what we believe about the Bible. And that is that the Bible alone is authoritative. There are no other authoritative holy books, sacred books. The Bible alone is authoritative for your life and mine. And it is inspired. It was given by God, orchestrated by God's design so that the very words that were written were God's intention for us. It was inspired and it's inerrant. It teaches no error. It contradicts itself nowhere. It's one whole truth given by God across decades and centuries, written by dozens of different authors, but it's all one book that never contradicts or oversteps itself. It is inspired and it's inerrant in the original documents. In the originals that were written or, or, or given by oration, it was inspired. But we aren't, we aren't blown away by that because in all of the thousands of copies that we have in both Old and New Testament manuscripts, there is calculated a 99.6% accuracy across the manuscripts. So, is the Bible you hold in your hand the originals? No, it's copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. But is the Bible you hold in your lap or you have on your tablet, is it reliable? 99.6% accurate. You know what that is? That's the world's foremost literary phenomenon. And that it's not 100% should not shock us at all. God in his grace handed the transmission of his word to human beings who have their fingerprints all over it to about 0.4 percent one sixtieth of which is not the trivialities that we can absolutely go we know what they meant so should that shock us or bother us not a bit your bible is reliable it accurately represents what God intended for you to know and me to know in 2018, whether it's King James, New King James, ESV, NIV, you know, they're, they're all reliable and we can with non-essential hugging it out, talk about how they differ in the way they read. We, we know why they do and we can talk about those things. So today we're moving into the second essential. Essential number two, God is Trinity. One God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now in the card you have, it probably says God is Trinity, ex- uh, eternally existing in three distinct persons. And that's the way we wrote it originally. And that, that's not saying that we didn't believe in one God, it's just that We wrote it out and and in between the time we wrote it out and the time I'm teaching this, I like it better to state one God. And so if you've got your little card, your little bookmark, what I would do is have you like put one of those little triangles right there and write one God up above that. In between, God is Trinity, one God eternally existing and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just go ahead and throw this out to you just so we can get it out. Is the word Trinity ever stated anywhere in the scriptures? The word Trinity, the Latin that comes, the, the word that comes from the Latin, is it anywhere in the Hebrew or Greek, Old and New Testaments? The answer is no. Trinity is not mentioned anywhere in the scripture. In fact, most credit, the first use of the word Trinity to a Latin theologian by the name of Tertullian, who used that word, most believe he was the first to use that in his writings in the third century, which would have been the 200s AD. Tertullian was probably the first to begin using that word Trinity. But that shouldn't shock us at all because what makes up the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly given to us in the scripture. We just utilize the word Trinity for communication purposes. It is absolutely essential what a Christian believes about God. In fact, I would I would go a step further. It's absolutely essential what a sinner believes about God if he or she is to be a Christian. You see, someone says, I believe in God. And we go, oh, we're brothers and sisters, right? Maybe not. Because what if their understanding of God is this celestial alien traveling through, a, through space in a spacecraft looking for you know, untold riches and personal pleasure? What if that's what they mean by I believe in God? And you know what? They're out there. Google it you'll find all kinds of who is God and and what's he doing and you'll find all kinds of so it's very important that we understand or what it's very important what we believe about God so today we want to talk about what it means to be one God eternally existing in three distinct uh, persons father son holy spirit let's talk about some governing presuppositions These are some things that we're going to just state and we're going to ask you to affirm. And these are on your handout. These are things that we just don't have time to defend. We're happy to defend them with you personally. But these are just some things that we just need as far as ground rules. Basically, are saying, can we be agreed on these things so that we can move forward? And here's what they are. These propositions that are going to govern our study today. Number one, the Bible is our basis for understanding God. Okay? What we're going to say about our belief about God is going to come from the Bible. Okay. That's where we're going to get our understanding about God. And we believe that the Bible is true. And we believe that the Bible is absolutely reliable and God's word to mankind. All right. So that's a governing proposition that just says, what we learn about God comes from the scripture. We think it's true and it's true for all of us. Okay. So that's just going to, that's going to lead our conversation today. Number two, we believe that there is only one God. It's not that we are talking about God in comparison to other gods. We simply believe there's only one God. His name is Yahweh, Jehovah, the one revealed to us and to his people. And we believe that he's revealed himself to his creation. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one there's only one God. And then Isaiah 45, five says, besides me, there is no other God. So that's just our presupposition. We get our stuff from the Bible and we're talking about one God and there are no other gods. Number three, God is eternal. We believe that God is eternal. It's going to govern our understanding of this essential. God is eternal He's not created and he has no beginning or end. So that's just something that we're throwing out there. That's, that's going to be a basis for our discussion. Number four, we believe that God is self-sufficient. Okay, that just simply means he's not dependent on anything. That God has no need for anything. There's no dependency of our God on anybody or anything so it comes from the bible uh, god is he's only he's the only one he's eternal and he is self-sufficient and then lastly the last governing proposition that we have is or presupposition is that the god of the old testament is the same god in the new testament okay there are many out there that believe that that the old testament describes one god and the, the, the new testament describes another god we're saying no the God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. And nothing has changed about him between the pages of the last book of the Old Testament and the first book of the New. He's the same God. So those are just some presuppositions. We're just kind of throwing them out there. If any of those cause you a little bit of anxiety, then we'll be happy to sit down and sharpen together and defend those things. But those are the presuppositions that are going to lead our study today. Number one in your handout, who does the Bible say is God? As we defend this statement that God is Trinity, one God, eternally existing, and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who does the Bible say is God? Well, the first, obviously, the Bible says that the Father is God. The Father is God. And, and here's what we're not gonna do. We're not going to defend that because it's all in the Old Testament that the Father is God. I've already read to you from Deuteronomy and Isaiah. Look, God the Father is understood, and that needs no defense. However, the other two do at times need defending. So the second, who does the Bible say is God? The Bible says that the Son, Jesus Christ, is God. Let's look at some of these verses that describe him as such. John 1, 1 it says, In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John using this, this idea of the word. There's a lot of folks that think, that this idea of the Word as a way to describe Jesus may have actually come from some, some ancient philosophy that, that had been used and was very familiar in the world that John was living in. And so to use that would set Jesus apart as this idea of the living Word. He, he was the source. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, referring to Christ. John chapter eight, verse number 58. Jesus said to them, he was talking to the Jews that were gathered around him. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I Some have argued that Jesus never thought about himself as God. Jesus never claimed to be God. In fact, they don't understand what John 8, 58 means. He was saying that before Abraham existed, I am using the same terminology that God used, the father used when describing himself to Moses in the burning bush where Moses says, Who am I going to say you are? What's your name? And God said, you tell my people, I am that I am. Ego, a me. It was how it was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, the the Septuagint of the Old Testament. It's the same words that Jesus used. He knew those Jewish leaders understood when he said, before Abraham was, ego, a me. He knew those individuals were going to put that connection. And he was saying before Abraham was, I am that I am. Did Jesus ever claim to be God? Oh, yes, he did in grandiose fashion. John chapter 10, verse number 30. He says again to the Jews in the temple. He says, I and the father are one. Make no mistake you pray to the Father, you think you 're worshipping the Father, but I am the and the Father are one John chapter twenty, verse number twenty eight after Jesus' resurrection, and after Thomas had said, "You know what i don 't know what you guys think you saw, but unless I can put my hands in the, in the in the, in the the nail prints and the, and the spear print in his side i 'm not going to believe he 's alive until he saw him, and what did thomas fall to his knees and say, my Lord and my God, because God the Son is, in fact, God. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 17. Paul says that he, talking about Christ, is before all things and in him. All things hold together, placing him as the creator, sustainer. Colossians 2, verse number 9. For in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You need to understand when you see Jesus, and yes, he is in physical form because he's put on flesh. And you need to understand that all of the godness needed to be God dwells in him physically. And then in Hebrews, chapter number 1, verse number 8. But of the Son, he says, Who is he saying? God the Father. Of the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. God says of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever. Who does the Bible say? is God? Well, the Father. And the Bible clearly says that the Son is God. The Bible also says that the Holy Spirit is God. And you understand that there are other illusions to the Son being God and the Spirit being God. This is not in your handout to make it look like there's many scriptures for Jesus being the, the, being God, and there's only one that we hang our understanding of the Holy Spirit. There are other illusions, but this one is clearly a demonstration of the Holy Spirit being understood as God. When in Acts chapter 5, so that's the Holy Spirit is God. In Acts chapter 5, verses number 3 and 4, there's a little scene going on. Uh, in the early church, Peter is leading this church, and they're, they're selling their stuff, and they're bringing it to the, to the apostles, And then they're giving that to the apostles, the money, so that they can distribute to those that are in need. And and Ananias and Sapphira, this couple, they watched a guy by the name of Barnabas go and sell a pretty expensive piece of property, bring the money to the apostles. Everybody celebrated. Everybody got excited. You know, Brother Barnabas, you know, he's done such a generous thing, and it was just an exciting thing. And over here on the side, Ananias and Sapphira said, you know, we ought to try to do something like that. Like, yeah, we ought to. Let's sell our, let's sell our property. We'll get a good price for it, but let's, you know, let's don't give it all. Let's save a little bit for ourselves and then let's give, you know, let's, let's give a good portion, but let's save a little bit. You know, there was nothing wrong with Ananias and Sapphira keeping some of that like god didn't say i want you to sell it and i want you to give all the money to the apostle that's not what he said he wants us to do it out of our own generosity out of out of out of a heart of worship for the lord because he's given us and and he wants us to want to give to others but what they did is they set a little bit of a, a side, and then they came into the church going we've gone and sold our property just like barnabas did and here's the money ananias laid that money down at peter's feet peter said ananias Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? What was the lie? The lie was that we sold it all and brought it all. What was the lie? To the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Verse number four, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? then why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. The Bible clearly says, and there are other allusions to the Holy Spirit being connected. And we'll see some of those in just a minute. The Bible says that the father is God. The Bible says that the son of the son is God. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is is God. Well, that begs the question, are these the same person? So is this this the Bible talking about the same person, but sometimes referring to him as father, sometimes son, sometimes Holy Spirit? Are these the same person or are these distinct persons? The biblical record reveals three distinct persons. Persons. Let's look at some of these. Matthew chapter number three, verse number 16 and 17 it gives us a scene where Jesus came to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist was in the Jordan. He was the forerunner of the Messiah and he was communicating to the people of Israel that Messiah is coming and when he comes you need to be ready. How do we get ready? By repenting. Repenting of your sin. Repent of your turning away from God and walking away from God and repent so that you'll be ready to receive Messiah when he comes. And so the folks that were that were buying into john's message of repentance were coming down into the river and they were showing everyone that they wanted to have a heart of repentance i want to be ready and right before god so that i'll be ready for the messiah when he comes and john was baptizing them to demonstrate what they were saying and doing in their heart the bible tells us that jesus came down and also stepped into the jordan river Uh uh-oh Does that mean that Jesus needed to repent? No. But Jesus came to authenticate the baptism that John was performing. And John laid the Son of God down in the water and brought him back up. And in Matthew 16, or Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 16, we see this scene. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, are these are these distinct persons or the same person? Behold the heavens were open to him and he talking about John saw the spirit of God descending like a dove to rest on him. So that we see where's the son of God in the water. Where's the spirit of God descending on him like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Who's speaking father you've got the father speaking you've got the son being baptized you've got the spirit descending visibly are these the same person or are they distinct persons we believe that essentially they are three distinct persons father son and and Holy Spirit. But let's don't stop there. Matthew twenty eight nineteen. When Jesus was about to ascend back up into heaven, he's given the instructions and we see this verse all the time here in this body. Matthew 28, 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And when they believe, you're to baptize them in whose name? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. You say, well, Kevin, there's only that that verse in acts that talks about the holy spirit being god then why did jesus say to baptize them in the name of the holy spirit in the same sentence that he said in the name of the father and of the son because the holy spirit is god distinctly from the others but let's don't stop there let's look at second corinthians chapter number 13 verse number 14 where paul is giving a benediction he's concluding this letter to the corinthian church and as he's he's signing off he's giving his last little bit some of you see when i send an email i always conclude it with what word what do i say say at the end what maranatha and some of you probably go what in the world is maranatha maranatha is a word that simply means our lord is returning Okay? I say that. I put that because I believe that. It's because that's what I want to say. You know what? Maranatha, whether you like or don't like or ignore or read what I said in that email, the Lord's still returning and he's going to sort all that out. Paul is ending the, the, the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians and here's what he said, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of who? God. And the fellowship of who? The Holy Spirit be with you all. Grace, love, fellowship. Son, Father, Spirit. We believe that the Bible clearly identifies three distinct persons. One God, three persons. One what, three who's. You say, well, I'm going to have a hard time explaining this to someone. Yes, you are. You know why? Because there's nothing else in our world like God. Although I've heard it explained at times, unfortunately, I've heard it said, well, you know, I understand that God's kind of like an egg. Really? How is God kind of like it? Well, you know, uh, the, an egg has a has a, a shell and it has a white and it has a yolk. So that's kind of how God is, right? But that's not how God is. That's how an egg is. That's silly well I think God's like an apple pie really how's God like an apple pie well you've got the bottom crust and you it's one pie but you got the bottom crust you got the filling and you got the top crust and that's kind of like so one God three different people now God's not a pie no, it's not a pie well here's here's how it is Kevin you know like you're like a you're a father and you're a brother and you're also a son And I'm also a husband and I'm a pastor. So, yeah, that's not, I'm the same dude. It's not three of them. There's not one that lives with Stacy and one that raises Cade and and Wes and Rhett and one that preaches. So, no, that's not how God. Well, you know what? I think God is kind of like three-in-one shampoo. Come on now. Well, no, it's the shampoo and the conditioner and the body wash all in one. Okay, come on. There's nothing else in our world that you can use to describe God, but he's one what? And three whos. One what? God. Three whos. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What's the logical implications of this distinct person? It is that each person, Father, Son, and Spirit, possesses all of the essence or nature of God. It means his being and his attributes. Each person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They all maintain every attribute that is required of the Godhead. One is not omniscient and the other omnipotent. One is not, they all possess the essence that is God. And yet at the same time, even though equal in essence, each person functions uniquely in the Godhead. God the Father has a unique role in the Godhead. God the Son has a unique role in the Godhead. One of the most common misstatements when we pray is when we say, Father, we want to thank you today for dying on the cross to say, it. God the Father did not die for us, God the Son did. And I don't think God's up there going, all right, I'm gonna have to take points off for you. No, no. But I think we do need to think about it. God the Father has a role. God the Son has a role. Who has the the most active role in our life as the church post resurrection? It's the Holy Spirit. And you know who gets the least amount of stage time in the Baptist tradition? The Holy Spirit. And he is the most active, according to Jesus' words, in our life. He's the one we should be listening to. He's the one that we should be resonating with. He's the one that we should be looking for to move in our lives so that we might be following. Where's the Holy Spirit going to follow us? Right behind Jesus. And who's Jesus going to be glorifying? The Father. All of us. But, But we have a person of the Godhead who leads us. They all have a unique role. Here's some things to be aware of, okay? You don't have this on your, on your outline, but you might want to write these down, okay? Here are some, some views to be aware of, okay? First, that the Trinity is explicitly taught in the Old Testament, okay? There is the, there is those that will say the Trinity is there and it's explicitly taught in the Old Testament. You need to understand, no, it's not. The illusions are there. There are verses, one that comes up in the first first couple of chapters of Genesis when God is is creating and he gets to the place where he's going to create mankind and he says, let us make man in our image. Now, here's what you don't know. Who's us? Here's what Moses didn't know. Who's us? Who, who Who is our He didn't know that, but yet God is communicating things about himself that won't become clear until centuries later, but he's laying the groundwork of the, in fact, they didn't even know what it meant that the seed of the woman will come and, and will you know, he'll have his heel struck by the seed of man, but he will strike his, they didn't know what that meant, but God was laying the groundwork for the work of Christ. But don't think that the Trinity is explicitly taught in the Old Testament. Please don't tell folks that that are arguing with you about the Trinity. Concede the fact that, yep, you're right, it's not taught in the Old Testament explicitly. So stay away from that. Stay away from that the Trinity is easily spelled out in the New Testament. You know, there are no verses that said, here's what I want you to understand about God. He's one God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There's no passage in the New Testament that spells it out that clearly. But all of the components are there. If you're listening and you're looking and you're honest about it, but be careful when someone says, hey, you know what? You're a Christian, aren't you? Yep, you believe in the Trinity? Yes, I do. (laughs) You know it's not even in the Bible. And before you go, oh, yes, it is. You go, you're right, the word's not used there. Hey, and you know what? The Bible doesn't say anything about Trinity. Even It doesn't even say how you're supposed to understand that. And you go, you're absolutely right. So why do you believe it? Because the Bible says that the Father is God, the Bible says that the Son is God, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is God, and he also says that there's only one God. How else am I supposed to believe that? One God, three persons. But just make sure you're arguing right and don't, don't find yourself in a corner that you won't be able to get yourself out of and then lastly when someone says i believe in god don't assume that they mean one god eternally existing in three distinct persons because chances are great they're locked onto that alien theory so just be sure that when they say i believe in god you know you still got work to do to make sure that you're believing in the same god because that is important it was important uh, in the early church. It's important now because you realize there's a there, there's a, a house of worship that just came in up the road. You recognize I've seen the sign. And you know what? We're going to love those folks, and we're going to talk to those folks, and we're going to introduce them to Jesus. But they will say that we believe in the same God. He just goes by a different name. Not so. Because the God that has revealed himself In His Word and in His Son is one God and three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Son laid down His life for you and I in our place and for our sin. So it is important. Be aware. All right, let's break this thing down and we'll be done for today. On the back side of your handout, what are some dangerous, your handout says viewpoints. but I would have you scratch that word out, viewpoints. What are some dangerous heresies? What are some heresies that are out there? Ways to understand God that are simply not true. The first one we'll identify is Unitarianism. What is Unitarianism? It's an improper focus on God's oneness that diminishes or denies the equality of the Son and the Spirit. In fact, this Unitarianism really looks at God very much like uh, Islam looks at God, as this one God, very impersonal, and that the the Son and the Spirit are not also God. So Unitarianism, be very careful. When you hear about this one God but no persons, that's probably going to be over into heresy. The second one, modalism modalism is an improper focus on God's oneness that sees only one person operating in three different modes or roles roles or modes this is the idea that God when he wants to operate as father goes to the closet pulls out his his big robe and puts that on and now he's operating as father And then when it came time for him to operate his son, he came and took off the father robe and put on the son robe and went and became born into uh, humanity. And then when that work was over and he ascended back up into heaven, he took off his son robe and put on his Holy Spirit robe. And that is heresy. That is not the way it works. That's saying God is one and there are no distinct persons. It's just Roles that God fill. All of these are ancient heresies. These go all the way back to the, to the second century. These ideas of how to understand God, but it is one to be avoided. Tritheism, also an improper understanding of God because it understands the distinct persons and diminishes their unity as one God. Oh yes, there are three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and therefore there are three God's tritheism. The Father is God number one, and the Son is God number two, and the Holy Spirit is God number three. They get together, they arm wrestle, and they decide who's going to end up with the dictation for the day. That is heresy. One God, three persons. One what, three who's. Or binitarianism. Binitarianism sees the Father and the Son as equal members. But the Holy Spirit is inferior to those two. In fact, the Holy Spirit is kind of like the father and son's little do-boy. You go do so we don't have to. That's binitarianism. It's an ancient heresy that you'll discover at work. When you're talking to people about God and you ask that fateful question that, well, tell me what you believe about God. Well, maybe you won't hear the alien theory but chances are great you'll hear something that sounds a lot like or mishmash of these heresies. What are you to do? To stand up and go, heretic, grab a stake, let's burn him. No, no. You're to communicate truth. Talk about the one God who exists in three distinct persons. Hey, Tell them you got a little handout with some scripture verses that you might wanna show them what the Bible says about each being God and that there is one God. That would be a novel idea. In 325 AD, a group of churches got together to solve a problem. That problem was established by a man by the name of Arius. Arius was a bishop in in the Roman church and Arius began to, to teach in his, uh, in, in his congregation that Jesus was bigger or, or more prominent than any other human, but that he was a created being, not God, but he was God's celestial creation to be Messiah on his behalf. Constantine, the emperor saw the struggle within the church. I think Constantine was more excited about keeping peace than he was about fixing doctrinal heresy. But Constantine says, if we can't figure this out, we're going to have to have all the bishops that are going to come together and y'all figure this thing out because we got to stop this infighting. And so they set up a date and a time and they met in, uh, let's see, what was the city? It was Iznik, Turkey. That's the modern day city that was Nicaea. And all these bishops came together with their entourages and they got together to talk about Arius. And is Arius' view right or wrong? And I mean, they got there and they really laid it to Arius. They just, I mean, they tore him up about what he was teaching. And out of that conversation came what we have called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed does this from from the uh, from the 4th century, 325 AD. The Nicene Creed explains or helps codify how we're to understand God as one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, helping maintain the orthodoxy of what God's word says. Can you imagine, and, and that was a hard thing for those guys to do because Arius was a popular man. Can you imagine what it would have meant if they would have gotten there and said, you know what? I just don't feel like I should speak up because that's not I mean, I don't know, Arius has been studying longer than I have. Where, what would have what been? What, what what did God say to us in Jude's little ledger, little letter? He says, I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all handed down. Well, that's what they did in 325. Drove that stake down and we will not understand Jesus as created because God's word does not say that. And so they fought and they codified what we have today as the Nicene Creed. We're not gonna quote it today, but we could and we'd believe it because it's true. Not because it's scripture, because it represents the work of the Holy Spirit on behalf of his word and truth In 325, be aware of the heresies, be aware of the truths, be aware of what God's word has to say. Now, you say, okay, great, feel like I've been to school. All right, well, I told you it was kind of going to be like that for the next eight or nine weeks. Are there practical implications for what we've learned today about the Trinity for our daily life? Is there something, Kevin, can I take this home and do something with this? You absolutely can. Let's go through these. What are some practical implications? First, Having a correct understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity informs our reading and understanding of the Bible. When we come to the Word and we hear from God the Father, we hear God the Son speak, we hear and see the movement of God the Holy Spirit, it informs us that it is the same God working at different times in human history underneath the different person uniquely, but they represent the same God. One God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It informs how I read God's word. Second, practically, it equips me to accurately think about and talk about God so that I can turn around and share the gospel to others. Understanding the doctrine of the Trinity, it helps me to think about God correctly so that I talk about God correctly so that I can share the gospel correctly because the gospel has to be correctly shared in order for the gospel to be effective. So it informs how I understand, informs how I communicate. Lastly, it defines for the disciple several things. First of all, the doctrine of the Trinity, God, self-sufficient, needing nothing. It defines for us true equality. When we talk about equality in our world, we, we see diversity and and we see fighting among people who are different. Sometimes we, we we think about equality in terms that benefit me. So if I've got a if I've got a racial beef, I can at times try to try to define equality so that it benefits me. But what do we see in the Godhead? we see the definition of true equality. All uniquely different, yet all having everything that is required to be considered God. When we think about equality, that means that we all are valuable. How do I know that? Because God sees himself that way. He said, well, he's not the father. He didn't speak in the Old Testament. In fact, the Holy Spirit doesn't have an opportunity to speak anytime, so he must be inferior. Uh Uh-uh. Equal. His role is different. As a person, he is different. But he is equal to the father, no less God than the father or the son. It defines for us equality. It defines for disciples true submission. When we talk about submitting, and, and, and we hear it when it comes down to husbands and wives, and, and unfortunately, a lot of times, submission is only used for the wife. Forgetting that like four verses ahead says that we're to mutually submit to everybody, all of us. So when we hear about submission, we think about, oh, okay, so what that means is I've got to be subservient to your desire. No. Y- you know who submitted to the will of the Father? The Son. Willingly submitting. Why did the Son submit to the Father's will? For you. So that you might be redeemed. So that you might be forgiven. Why why does the Holy Spirit not lead us to see Him, but rather to see Jesus? Because He submits so that we might see the one who walked that way for us. And we might follow Him. We can put to practice what we learn in the doctrine of the Trinity in the submission that we have to one another, mutual and equal. The doctrine of the Trinity defines for disciples true community. You realize God didn't create us because he needed somebody to talk to. God didn't create us because he wanted something to play with. God created us so that he might exist in community with us. And he made us in his image, which is the image of community at work. Self sufficient, living in community in the Godhead. Submitting to one another, caring for one another, exalting one another. Does that look like our community? Not so much. We got a lot to learn from the Trinity about how we are to exist equally submissive in community. The doctrine of the Trinity defines for us true selflessness. What did the Father do? He gave His only begotten Son. What did the Son do? He offered Himself for you. What does the Spirit do He points the light on Jesus. Selflessness. It's not just an academic exercise talking about the Trinity. God is modeling for us what it looks like to live selflessly. And then lastly, it defines for the disciple true love. True love. Which actually is the basis for all the others true love showing us submission true love showing us selflessness true love showing us community true love showing us equality what do we learn from the trinity way more than we can wrestle with we got a lot to do just on the basis of how we understand God based on what he said about himself. What is the essential that we believe? Let's say it together. God is Trinity, one God, eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have revealed who you are to us in your word. One God, three persons. Father, I pray that you will help us not only to understand you as correctly as possible, but God, that we will learn from you how to exist as brothers and sisters, how to exist as witnesses in this world that needs to see you, God, give us the courage to communicate you accurately. Give us the courage to represent you daily. God, give us the courage to pursue what you've called us to do, making disciples as we wait on the return of your son, who is our savior, our coming king. For it's in his name that all voices of church said.